three, chapters nine and ten of Joseph Andrews. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Read by Dennis Sayers. Joseph Andrews by Henry Fielding. Chapter nine. Containing as surprising and bloody adventures as can be found in this or perhaps any other authentic history. It was almost morning when Joseph Andrews, whose eyes the thoughts of his dear Fanny had opened, as he lay fondly meditating on that lovely creature, heard a violent knocking at the door over which he lay. He presently jumped out of bed, and opening the window was asked if there were no travellers in the house, and presently, by another voice, if two men and a woman had not taken up their lodging that night. Though he knew not the voices, he began to entertain a suspicion of the truth, for indeed he had received some information from one of the servants of the squire's house of his design, and answered in the negative. One of the servants, who knew the host well, called out to him by his name, just as he had opened another window, and asked him the same question, to which he answered in the affirmative. Oho! said another, have we found you, and ordered the host to come down and open his door? Fanny, who was as wakeful as Joseph, no sooner heard all this than she leaped from her bed, and hastily, putting on her gown and her petticoats, ran as fast as possible to Joseph's room, who then was almost dressed. He immediately let her in, and, embracing her with the most passionate tenderness, bid her fear nothing, for he would die in her defence. "'Is that a reason why I should not fear?' says she, when I would lose what is dearer to me than the whole world." Joseph, then kissing her hand, said, he could almost thank the occasion which had extorted from her a tenderness she would never indulge him with before. He then ran and waked his bedfellow, Adams, who was yet fast asleep, notwithstanding many calls from Joseph, but he was no sooner made sensible of their danger than he leaped from his bed, without considering the presence of Fanny, who hastily turned her face from him, and enjoyed a double benefit from the dark, which, as it would have prevented any offence to an innocence less pure, or a modesty less delicate, so it concealed even those blushes which were raised in her. Adams had soon put on all his clothes, but his breeches, which in the hurry he forgot. However, they were pretty well supplied by the length of his other garments, and now, the house-door being opened, the captain, the poet, the player, and three servants came in. The captain told the host that two fellows, who were in his house, had run away with a young woman, and desired to know in which room she lay. The host, who presently believed the story, directed them, and instantly the captain and poet, justling one another, ran up. The poet, who was the nimblest, entering the chamber first, searched the bed, and every other part, but to no purpose. 
the bird was flown, as the impatient reader, who might otherwise have been in pain for her, was before advertised. They then inquired where the men lay, and were approaching the chamber, when Joseph roared out in a loud voice that he would shoot the first man who offered to attack the door. The captain inquired what firearms they had, to which the host answered he believed they had none. Nay, he was almost convinced of it, for he had heard one ask the other in the evening what they should have done if they had been overtaken when they had no arms, to which the other answered they would have defended themselves with their sticks as long as they were able, and God would assist a just cause. This satisfied the captain, but not the poet, who prudently retreated downstairs, saying it was his business to record great actions, and not to do them. The captain was no sooner well satisfied that there were no firearms, than bidding defiance to gunpowder, and swearing he loved the smell of it, he ordered the servants to follow him, and marching boldly up, immediately attempted to force the door, which the servants soon helped him to accomplish. When it was opened, they discovered the enemy drawn up three deep, Adams in the front, and Fanny in the rear. The captain told Adams that if they would go all back to the house again, they should be civilly treated, but unless they consented, he had orders to carry the young lady with him, whom there was great reason to believe they had stolen from her parents, for notwithstanding her disguise, her air, which she could not conceal, sufficiently discovered her birth to be infinitely superior to theirs. Fanny, bursting into tears, solemnly assured him he was mistaken, that she was a poor helpless foundling, and had no relation in the world which she knew of, and throwing herself on her knees, begged that he would not attempt to take her from her friends, whom, she was convinced, would die before they would lose her, which Adams confirmed with words not far from amounting to an oath. The captain swore he had no leisure to talk, and bidding them thank themselves for what happened, he ordered the servants to fall on, at the same time endeavouring to pass by Adams in order to lay hold on Fanny. But the parson, interrupting him, received a blow from one of them, which, without considering whence it came, he returned to the captain, and gave him so dexterous a knock in that part of the stomach, which is vulgarly called the pit, that he staggered some paces backwards. The captain, who was not accustomed to this kind of play, and who wisely apprehended the consequence of such another blow, two of them seeming to him equal to a thrust through the body, drew forth his hanger, as Adams approached him, and was levelling a blow at his head, which would probably have silenced the preacher for ever, had not Joseph in that instant lifted up a certain huge stone pot of the chamber with one hand, 
which six bows could not have lifted with both, and discharged it, together with the contents, full in the captain's face. The uplifted hanger dropped from his hand, and he fell prostrated on the floor, with a lumpish noise, and his halfpence rattled in his pocket. The red liquor which his veins contained, and the white liquor which the pot contained, ran in one stream down his face and his clothes. Nor had Adams quite escaped, some of the water having in its passage shed its honours on his head, and began to trickle down the wrinkles, or rather furrows, of his cheeks, when one of the servants, snatching a mop out of a pail of water, which had already done its duty in washing the house, pushed it in the parson's face. Yet could not he bear him down, for the parson, resting the mop from the fellow with one hand, with the other brought his enemy as low as the earth, having given him a stroke over that part of the face where, in some men of pleasure, the natural and artificial noses are conjoined. Hitherto fortune seemed to incline the victory on the traveller's side, when, according to her custom, she began to show the fickleness of her disposition. For now the host, entering the field, or rather chamber, of battle, flew directly at Joseph, and darting his head into his stomach, for he was a stout fellow, and an expert boxer, almost staggered him. But Joseph, stepping one leg back, did with his left hand so chuck him under the chin that he reeled. The youth was pursuing his blow with his right hand, when he received from one of the servants such a stroke with a cudgel on his temples, that it instantly deprived him of sense, and he measured his length on the ground. Fanny rent the air with her cries, and Adams was coming to the assistance of Joseph, but the two serving men and the host now fell on him, and soon subdued him, though he fought like a madman, and looked so black with the impressions he had received from the mop, that Don Quixote would certainly have taken him for an enchanted moor. But now follows the most tragical part, for the captain was risen again, and seeing Joseph on the floor, and Adams secured, he instantly laid hold on Fanny, and with the assistance of the poet and player, who hearing the battle was over, were now come up, dragged her, crying and tearing her hair, from the sight of her Joseph, and with a perfect deafness to all her entreaties, carried her downstairs by violence, and fastened her on the player's horse, and the captain, mounting his own, and leading that on which this poor miserable wretch was, departed, without any more consideration of her cries, than a butcher hath of those of a lamb. For indeed his thoughts were entertained only with the degree of favour which he promised himself from the squire on the success of this adventure. The servants, who were ordered to secure Adams and Joseph as safe as possible, that the squire might receive no interruption to his design on poor Fanny, 
immediately, by the poet's advice, tied Adams to one of the bedposts, as they did Joseph on the other side, as soon as they could bring him to himself, and then, leaving them together, back to back, desiring the host not to set them at liberty, nor to go near them, till he had further orders, they departed towards their master, but happened to take a different road from that which the captain had fallen into. CHAPTER Ten, A DISCOURSE BETWEEN THE POET AND THE PLAYER, OF NO OTHER USE IN THIS HISTORY, BUT TO DIVERT THE READER. Before we proceed any farther in this tragedy, we shall leave Mr. Joseph and Mr. Adams to themselves, and imitate the wise conductors of the stage, who, in the midst of a grave action, entertain you with some excellent piece of satire or humour called a dance, which piece, indeed, is therefore danced, and not spoke, as it is delivered to the audience by persons whose thinking faculty is by most people held to lie in their heels, and to whom, as well as heroes, who think with their hands, nature hath only given heads for the sake of conformity, and as they are of use in dancing to hang their hats on. The poet, addressing the player, proceeded thus. As I was saying, for they had been at this discourse all the time, of the engagement above stairs, the reason you have no good new plays is evident. It is from your discouragement of authors. Gentlemen will not write, sir. They will not write without the expectation of fame or profit, or perhaps both. Plays are like trees, which will not grow without nourishment, but, like mushrooms, they shoot up spontaneously, as it were, in a rich soil. The muses, like vines, may be pruned, but not with a hatchet. The town, like a peevish child, knows not what it desires, and is always best pleased with a rattle. A farce writer hath indeed some chance for success, but they have lost all taste for the sublime. Though I believe one reason of their depravity is the badness of the actors. If a man writes like an angel, sir, those fellows know not how to give a sentiment utterance. Not so fast, says the player. The modern actors are as good, at least, as their authors. Nay, they come nearer their illustrious predecessors, and I expect a booth on the stage again, sooner than a Shakespeare or an Otway. And indeed I may turn your observation against you, and with truth say that the reason no authors are encouraged is because we have no good new plays." I have not affirmed the contrary, said the poet, but I am surprised you grow so warm. You cannot imagine yourself interested in this dispute. I hope you have a better opinion of my taste than to apprehend I squinted at yourself. No, sir, 
if we had six such actors as you, we should soon rival the Bettertons and Sanfords of former times, for without a compliment to you, I think it impossible for any one to have excelled you in most of your parts. Nay, it is solemn truth, and I have heard many and all great judges express as much, and you will pardon me if I tell you, I think every time I have seen you lately, you have constantly acquired some new excellence, like a snowball. You have deceived me in my estimation of perfection, and have outdone what I thought inimitable. You are as little interested, answered the player, in what I have said of other poets, for d blank in me, if there are not many strokes, I whole scenes in your last tragedy, which at least equal Shakespeare. There is a delicacy of sentiment, a dignity of expression in it, which I will own many of our gentlemen did not do adequate justice to. To confess the truth, they are bad enough, and I pity an author who is present at the murder of his works. Nay, it is but seldom that it can happen, returned the poet. The works of most modern authors, like dead-born children, cannot be murdered. It is such wretched, half-begotten, half-writ, lifeless, spiritless, low-groveling stuff, that I almost pity the actor who is obliged to get it by heart, which must be almost as difficult to remember as words in a language you don't understand. I am sure, said the player, if the sentences had little meaning when they are writ, when they are spoken, they have less. I know scarce one who ever lays an emphasis right, and much less adapts his action to his character. I have seen a tender lover in an attitude of fighting with his mistress, and a brave hero suing to his enemy with his sword in his hand. I don't care to abuse my profession, but rot me if in my heart I am not inclined to the poet's side. It is rather generous in you than just, said the poet, and though I hate to speak ill of any person's production, nay, I never do it, nor will. But yet, to do justice to the actors, what could Booth or Betterton have made of such horrible stuff as Fenton's, Mariamne, Froud's, Philotus, or Malay's Eurydice, or those low, dirty, last-dying speeches, which a fellow in the city of Wapping, your Dillo, or Lillo, what was his name, called tragedies. Very well, says the player, and pray, what do you think of such fellows as Quinn and Delane, or that face-making puppy young Cyber, that ill-looking dog Macklin, or that saucy slut Mrs. Clive? 
what would they make with your Shakespeare's, Otway's, and Lee's? How would those harmonious lines of the last come from their tongues? No more, for I disdain all pomp when thou art by. Far be the noise of kings and crowns from us, whose gentle souls our kinder fates have steered another way. Free as the forest birds will pair together, without remembering who our fathers were, fly to the arbors, grots, and flowery meads, there in soft murmurs interchange our souls, together drink the crystal of the stream, or taste the yellow fruit which autumn yields, and when the golden evening calls us home, wing to our downy nests, and sleep till morn. Or how would this disdain of Otway? Who'd be that foolish, sordid thing called man? Hold, 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 said the poet, do repeat that tender speech in the third act of my play, which you made such a figure in. I would willingly, said the player, but I have forgot it. I, you, was not quite perfect in it when you played it, cries the poet, or you would have had such an applause as was never given on the stage, an applause I was extremely concerned for your losing. Sure, says the player, if I remember that, that was hissed more than any passage in the whole play. Ay, your speaking it was hissed, said the poet. My speaking it, said the player. I mean, you're not speaking it, said the poet. You was out, and then they hissed. They hissed. And then I was out, if I remember, answered the player, and I must say this for myself, that the whole audience allowed I did your part justice. So don't lay the damnation of your play to my account. I don't know what you mean by damnation, replied the poet. Why, you know it was acted but one night, cried the player. No, said the poet, you and the whole town were enemies. The pit were all my enemies, fellows that would cut my throat, if the fear of hanging did not restrain them. All tailors, sir, all tailors. Why should the tailors be so angry with you, cries the player? I suppose you don't employ so many in making your clothes. I admit your jest, answered the poet, but you remember the affair as well as myself. You know there was a party in the pit and upper gallery that would not suffer it to be given out again, though much I infinitely, the majority, all the boxes in particular, were desirous of it. Nay, most of the ladies swore they would never come to the house till it was acted again. Indeed, I must own their policy was good in not letting it be given out a second time, for the rascals knew if it had gone a second night, 
it would have run fifty. For if ever there was distress in a tragedy, I am not fond of my own performance, but if I should tell you what the best judges said of it, nor was it entirely owing to my enemies, neither that it did not succeed on the stage as well as it hath, since among the polite readers, for you can't say it had justice done it, by the performers. I think, answered the player, the performers did the distress of it justice, for I am sure we were in distress enough, who were pelted with oranges all the last act. We all imagined it would have been the last act of our lives. The poet, whose fury was now raised, had just attempted to answer when they were interrupted, and an end put to their discourse by an accident, which, if the reader is impatient to know, he must skip over the next chapter, which is a sort of counterpart to this, and contains some of the best and gravest matters in the whole book, being a discourse between Parson Abraham Adams and Mr. Joseph Andrews. End of Book 3, Chapters 9 and 10 Read by Dennis Sayers in Modesto, California For LibriVox